Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line. From TSPN, that is the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, also known as The Ant Hill. Today we are going to do one of my favorite kinds of shows. That is our listener feedback show. This is where you send me your comments, your questions, your commentary, all kinds of stuff like that. You send that in an email and you send it to the only email address you ever need for me, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. I get people all the time on Facebook and things like that. What email? What email? Folks, 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 I've been giving you my email since the day I started doing this show. I don't have special emails for special people, except all of you are special people because you're my audience. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com is my personal email. I read everything that comes in there unless the spam filter eats it by putting something in the subject line like survival or TSP or podcast. You can make sure I find it when I check through the 8 billion spam emails I get a day with the filtering process. Just thought I'd throw that in. If you usually skip the intro segment, do not skip today's intro segment. There is way too much cool stuff in today's intro segment. Like what? Like I'm going to tell you how to win a free survival rifle. I'm going to tell you how uh, we have copper rounds back in the gear shop. All kinds of cool stuff. So chill with me today in the intro segment. Don't skip ahead. First thing we will do, though, is take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. And sponsor of the day number one is Safe Castle Royal. You know, if you said who was the first, I would have to tell you it was Safe Castle Royal. So that means they're the longest-term sponsor we have. They were the very first company that stood up and said, hey, we want to sponsor this show Uh, tell us what it's going to take to do it, and we will get it done. And that's pretty awesome. And they've been with us now over three years. They also support the Member Support Brigade by giving away their Discount Buyers Club, which costs $29. It's a lifetime membership for discounts on everything they sell. They give that away for free if you are part of the Member Support Brigade. So you may want to consider joining the Member Support Brigade just because it's that awesome that you get that alone. Uh, Stave Castle Royal, though, what do they have? They have everything you need for your prepping. They really do. Long-term storage food, uh, good 12-volt products to work with your solar projects, you name it, self-defense uh, products, whatever you're looking for, they've got it there at Safe Castle. Uh, they also really build some of the most amazing hardened shelters you'll find anywhere in the world. So when you're over at their site, you can see a little link to click over to the sister site they have where they focus on their shelters. You may want to consider them for something like a storm shelter uh, with all the storms that we've been having lately. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. That's Frank Sharp Jr. Frank will be joining us for an interview segment that will kick off the interview blitz I'm doing for when I'm on vacation, uh, which will begin Friday and run through the following week and a little bit into the next week. I'll be down in Fort Myers. Uh, so he'll be with us on Thursday of this week. Frank is a, just an amazing guy with a real sense of realism in him. Uh, you know, well, there's all kinds of firearms training out there, but what you really want to train for is what's likely to actually happen. Uh, check out Fortress Defense Consultants. Remember, if uh, you can't get to them for training, 
training and you have a small group you can put together, they will travel and come to you and put together a training at your location. They'll even consult with you on setting up and hardening your, uh, your retreat location if you want to do something like that with them. Complete end-to-end firearms training with a huge dose of realism. Fortress Defense Consultants. Remember, you'll find Safe Castle and Fortress Defense Consultants and all of our sponsors at the survivalpodcast.com in the right-hand margin. That's how you know you're dealing with a real sponsor. Remember, unlike a lot of places, if they are on my show as a sponsor, they are a personal endorsement for me, and they are approved by my listener at Council, or they don't get on the show. There's a limited number of spaces. You get only the best from the Survival Podcast. Uh, next up, wanted to tell you guys big thing. Uh, the Gear Shop once again has AOCS Copper Rounds. Uh, we sold 14,000 of those before we got one in stock. We completely sold out of the first run uh, out of the gate. Um, now they're available again. We had some issues with shipping with uh, certain larger quantities. Everything will now be shipped in coin tubes, so you might want to get over and get some of the AOCS copper rounds while you can from our gear shop and check out some of the other great stuff that's there. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You support the show at about 20 cents an episode and you get discounts to over 25 really awesome vendors uh, and I just keep trying to add value to that discount uh, component all the time. I put it this way. It's like triple um, A only the discounts actually matter. You can't actually just get the discounts by asking, you know, like every time I check into a hotel and I'm like, oh, what's the best rate you can give me? And they're like, oh, it's this. And I go, well, what about my triple A discount? And they're like, I already gave you a better discount than that. So these discounts inside the Member Support Brigade actually matter. Speaking of discounts, prior service, active duty, military, either one. Email me before you join, and I'll give you a special discount code. Just tell me you know, what branch you're in, when you serve, that type of thing, what your job was. Just a little bit of information uh, about what you did, because I want to know. You know, I want to know uh, because I care. It's not just like a vetting process, really. It is because I just care and I want to know. Last but not least today, this is a big deal. Um, over the next two weeks, you've got from now till next Friday to go fill out one simple form and then maybe connect with these guys on uh, Facebook because they're so cool to do this. Bob Griswold over at Ready Made Resources, another long-term sponsor, is giving away an AR-7 survival rifle. All you got to do is go to today's show notes and click on a link in the show notes and you can go fill out one form and maybe you will win a survival rifle. If at least 2,500 of you do that, I get one too. So please help me out. Share this information with anybody you know that you think might like a chance to win a gun. It will help spread the message about our sponsor and spread the message about the survival podcast. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. There is all kinds of stuff going on out there. Sometimes it's really hard to pin down what I'm going to talk about. Um, but when I saw this article, I went, I have to read this one on the air. I have to talk about this one on the air because it's such a big deal. I have been talking about China rising and the U.S. sinking for a long time. Some people think I'm an alarmist. People travel to China and they get outside of Beijing or what have you and they see the backward way that some people live over there. And then they email me and tell me I'm being an alarmist and, uh, you know, that, they, that China is just trying to create this illusion. I want to, you know, before I even read this, I want to preface that kind of thinking with this. If you took a ride through America, 1945, 1955, even up to around 1965, through rural America, you would have said the same thing about America. We'll never really rise. We'll never really rise to the to what America supposedly can become. And you would have looked at people like my father and his family who were still using an outhouse in the early 60s, and you would have thought that. 
Um, but we made the investment in our infrastructure and in our people and in our technology, and we became the – and people would say we already were, but not the way – if you know history, you know what the United States really became through even the depression of, or the recession of the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and what we have really become by that point. And you know that we're falling away from that. So don't discount China just because some places are real still kind of crappy. Uh, they have 1.7 billion people. Uh, think about this. Um, they could have half of their people living in squalor, half living in prosperity, and they would still have, you know, five times what we have living in prosperity. You, you gotta think about that. Alright, let me read this to you because this is gonna affect us all sooner or later. China has divested 97% of its holdings of treasury bills. That's bills, not bonds. Listen to the difference as I read this because it's bad, but it not, it's not as bad as that might sound initially. China has dropped 97% of its holdings in U.S. Treasury bills, decreasing the ownership of the short-term U.S. government securities from a peak of $210.4 billion in May 2009 uh, to $5.69 billion in March of 2011, the most recent month ex reported uh, by the U.S. Treasury. Treasury bills are securities that mature in one year or less, so that's what they've divested themselves, that are sold by the U.S. Treasury Department to fund the nation's debt. Mainland Chinese holdings of U.S. Treasury bills are reported in column 9 of the Treasury Report, linked below. Until October, the Chinese were generally making up for their decreasing holdings in Treasury bills by increasing their holdings of longer-term U.S. Treasury securities. Thus, until October, China's overall holdings of U.S. debt continued to increase. Since October, however, China has started to divest from the longer-term U.S. securities. Thus, as reported by the U.S. Treasury Department, China's ownership of the U.S. national debt has decreased each of the last five months on record, including uh, November, December, January, February, and March. So this is a, a look back on the quarter. Um, prior to the fall of 2008, according to Treasury Department data, Chinese ownership of short-term Treasury bills was modest, standing at about $19.8 billion in August of that year. But when President George W. Bush signed legislation to authorize $700 billion bailout of the U.S. financial industry in October 2008, President Bar and then President Barack Obama signed a $787 billion economic stimulus law in February 2009, Chinese, Chinese ownership of short-term U.S. Treasury bills skyrocketed. By December of 2008, China owned 165.2 billion in U.S. Treasury bills. According to the Treasury Department, by G March 2009, Chinese Treasury bill holdings were at 191.1 billion. By May of 2009, Chinese holdings of Treasury bills were peaking at 210.4 billion. However, China's overall appetite for U.S. debt increased over a longer span uh, than did its appetite for short-term U.S. Treasury bills. In August 2008, before the bank bailout, the stimulus law, overall Chinese holdings of U.S. debt stood at $503.7 billion. That number continued to escalate past May of 2009 when China started to reduce its holdings in short-term Treasury bills and ultimately peaked at $1.17 trillion in October. As of March 2011, Chinese overall holdings of U.S. debt have decreased to $1.14 trillion. So it's still way higher. You can read the rest of the article if you want to, but what's the message here? Well, the message here is when the Federal Reserve started printing money like crazy and giving away U.S. debt for almost no interest, the Chinese went and grabbed a whole bunch of U.S. Treasury bills, not bonds. These are short-term, one-year-or-less instruments. And they did that for a couple years. What were they doing? 
What's not in this article? What does nobody but people like me at the Survival Podcast tell you? The unseen hidden truth. What do you think they were doing this money do you, with these bills? Do you think they were just sitting on them? Or do you think maybe they were doing this? They were taking that and using it as their own debt leverage to print more of their own fiat money and turning around and buying longer-term U.S. instruments with them, which is what they've done, so that they could convert the short-term to long-term debt where they could actually make some real interest on us and then start divesting themselves in total long-term. Basically doing the same things that the U.S. banks were doing in reverse. The U.S. banks were going and getting the money loaned directly by the Fed, turning around and buying the Treasury notes, the long-term bonds, right, so that they could t take and make money on the spread. Well, the Chinese just bought the, the short-term instrument That increases their debt, which since they run a fiat money system the same as we do, that means they print more of their own Chinese money. Then they take their Chinese money that they use to leverage against the short-term debt, okay? turn around, buy the long-term debt with it, and then let the whole debt begin to dissolve, make the interest along the way, take the interest payments, and invest in commodities in Africa and the rest of the developing world, moving their economy from a debt-based economy to more of a commodities-based economy so that they are poised and ready as they build out infrastructure the way we were doing in the 50s and 60s to take on their new role as economic leader of the globe. That's what this really is. Now, you can tell me I'm an alarmist. You can tell me I'm wrong, but one thing you will have a lot of problems doing is proving that I'm wrong. Uh, that came from Greg Cecil. This also comes from Greg Cecil. Um, a lot of people sent this one in, uh, this next article. It's something I want to talk about for a variety of reasons. This is on the Telegraph, and here's the headline. Japan, green tea exports banned due to high radiation levels. Uh, the Japanese government has banned shipments of green tea leaves in four regions after high levels of radioactive cesium were found. A swath of Japanese tea-making regions, including something, Chiba and Kogana Prefecture, as well as the whole of Irbiaka, were included within the ban according to the Ministry of Health, Health Labor, and Welfare. Green tea plantations were first highlighted as suffering from potential radiation contamination last month, following the results of sample tests in Kawanga Prefecture. The authorities discovered around 570 burkrolls of cesium per kilogram in the leaves grown in the city of Minganushia, uh, compared to a legal limit of 500, and started to recall the tea products. So they have a limit of up to 500, they found 570, so it's slightly over what's legally considered to be reasonable from background sources, I guess. Tea leaves are the latest agricultural product which to be affected by the problems surrounding the still-damaged Fukushima Dachai uh, nuclear power plant. From milk to spinach, a raft of items have fallen under a spotlight due to radiation fears, although Japanese authorities have assured the public that it's export and its export nations that it's strictly regulating products. Tens of thousands of farmers have been hit hard by the nuclear crisis due to issues surrounding potential soil contamination and food safety fears may also uh, having had abandoned their animals in the evacuation area. Okay, a couple of things I want to talk about here. One, here we're starting to see the real problem with Fukushima and the Japanese disaster in totality. Um, I was really big on telling you guys, stop freaking out when this thing 
happened. And I'm still saying, stop freaking out. Every day I get an email from somebody, uh, at least one person a day, uh, with some guy that nobody ever heard of that has no credentials other than the ones that he invented for himself, talking about how everybody in America is going to die of thyroid cancer or whatever because of radiation levels out of Japan. And it's just not going to happen. It hasn't happened. And we're not going to deal with it over here. But here's the other side. We are going to deal with the repercussions of what this is going to do to Japan. And I do believe that officials are underpinning, underplaying the real damage within Japan, the surrounding oceans, and the surrounding areas. And I am very, very concerned for the long-term stability and future of Japan and the nuclear impact as a whole on the nation itself. Remember, it's a very small, relatively speaking, island nation made up of several islands. And uh, when they lose land especially permanently. So, you know, when we're talking about, uh, you know, some gas off, the half-life on that stuff can be seconds. But when we're talking about things like cesium and other heavy elements that are actually falling out and landing in these places, uh, you can have half-lives of 300 or 1,000 years with some of these different elements. And that is a huge, huge concern for what it's going to do there. Those of you that are still hiding under a lead umbrella and popping potassium iodide, cut the crap out. Please remember that your government detonated nuclear bombs in our desert in the 60s. All right? And get a globe and look how far away Japan is and realize how limited the effect can actually be in America. But what the effect in America can be economically and from an already uh, strained global food production environment. And, you know, right now we got to be really careful with any seafood they're eating. Where is it coming from? You know, um, there's an old joke that um, uh, back when they used to have smoking on airplanes, that uh, a non-smoking section in an airplane was like a no-peeing section in a pool, that if it's in there, eventually it gets everywhere. Well, with radiation in the ocean, there is a certain dilution at some point. There is a certain amount of radioactivity that's out there all the time. Uh, there is a certain uh, propensity for eventually it to fall out, but it can spread far further in the water than I think a lot of people realize. And there's a lot of uh, seafood that comes from that area of the Pacific, going south of Japan, north of Japan, uh, east of Japan, uh, in the uh, in the China Sea. That I, I don't know what the long-term effects are going to be. And we have to rely on people that lie to us, like the collective governments of the world, to tell us when it's safe and what's not safe, and how far that stuff gets. So that's going to put tremendous, and you know, we look at you know major rice growing regions within that area, and how bad is this really? We don't know. We're not going to die of radiation poisoning here from this, folks. And anybody telling you they are, especially the guy goes, "There's a giant cloud of death headed toward America right now," and they're not telling you the truth about it. And you know what I'm talking about? Full of shit. But the overall global ramifications of this thing are far from over. I still think Japan will be somewhat back to normal before we put one tenant in the Freedom Tower in New York because they'll do whatever it takes. And I just talked to one of my sponsors recently who I won't name because I don't know if he wants to be publicly quoted as saying this, but he said they won't worry about a snail dart they'll, you know, or any other creature that they're going to uh, inconvenience. They'll build a higher seawall, they'll build better technology, and they'll just get it done. And I believe that. But the, new, the radiation fallout issue, 
is going to be really, really a big deal for the Japanese long term. So those of you who don't hear me talking about this all the time and think that I don't think that we're being misled, I don't think that we're being lied to, I don't think it's a problem, that's not the case. I just don't want any more hype and hysteria at all done here in America about the danger of the radiation directly to us. And all the people who are freaking out about, look at the radiation map, look, look at the radiation map, folks, look at it. Look it up, type in radiation map on Google, and you'll see it looks pretty much the way that it did, you know, two weeks before this thing happened. And you're not going to see, and, and, and stop it. But do understand the global ramifications when one of the largest industrialized nations in the world, economically speaking, that is a major player in the global economy is dealing with this at home. It's not, it's not a good situation. It pours gas on an already smoldering fire that's attacking our food system and our global economy. Um, next one up, I have a question. Uh, Marcus says, uh, concerning beer making, I'm considering brewing my own beer, but one issue holding me back for now is uncertainty about the use of kegs. My preference would be to make a couple, a couple or several kegs worth of beer and then store the kegs and use as needed. My question is, how long will an untapped keg stay fresh? After tapped, how long will an open keg stay fresh? What do I need to do to ensure maximum freshness? Uh, this would be everyday drinking beer. My plan would be to avoid bottling, just use kegs uh, to be kept in the refrigerator and always available. Thanks, Marcus. Uh, well, okay, a year easy without really much worry as long as it's you know not in a really hot environment. So you say keep in the refrigerator, but I don't think you're going to keep multiple kegs in your refrigerator. Uh, but if you're going to do everyday drinking beer, please understand this. Uh, anybody out there that's you know listening to the beer uh, podcast and all should know this by now. It doesn't take long to make an everyday drinking beer. You know, a nice amber American ale, uh, uh, English brown, a brown mild, anything like that. Uh, we're talking about a two-week process, maybe a three-week process at most. So there's no need to have like 80 kegs on hand or anything like that. So this is something that's, especially with kegging, it's a relatively easy thing to do. There's also always the kind of middle ground between kegs and bottles, which are those little mini kegs that are about a one and a quarter gallon each. So four of them will keg up a, uh, a five-gallon batch for you. Those will, uh, those will work quite well as well. With a keg, um, you're going to actually extend your storage capacity for beer. The, the biggest enemy to beer, other than uh, exposure to oxygen and allowing it to decarbonate as well, uh, is going to be light. So in a brown bottle, you've got a lot of protection from light. In a keg, you've got extreme protection from light. So, you know, you can easily have beer that you can, if you store beer for two years in a keg in a, a cool environment, it's going to be fine to drink, but many of your simple everyday drinking beers will be well past prime. But six months to a year, you're going to be fine. It's just not even going to matter. If you want to have beer that's storable long term, then the solution to that is to make everyday drinking beer in your normal rate, rotation and your long-term storage, make something that's better suited for long-term storage. So something with a higher gravity, higher alcohol content that needs the time to mature anyway, like a barley wine or, or a higher gravity ale or something like that. An IPA with more hops. The more hops you use, the more preservative characteristics they give you. So an ale that's a little bit more highly hopped will store better. But keeping your temperatures cool, keeping your light down, and keeping your, keeping your beer sealed, obviously, because you need to do that anyway to hold carbonation in. Those are the things that will extend the storage life of your beer. Don't, but you know, what, the thing is, Mark, is what's holding me back is, no, don't, no, don't do that. 
Don't, don't let anything hold you back when it comes to something. I don't care if it's growing a garden or making beer or modifying a boat or building a greenhouse or uh, investing in, in something that's a little bit different than what your financial advisor says or getting out of debt. None of this stuff holds you back because you don't know. That's, that's bullshit. Don't let things hold you back. Go do it and figure it out as you go. And the worst thing that will happen is you'll store beer a little bit longer than you should have, and you'll learn that with the space you have, the area you have, the temperature environment you have, that uh, eight months you start to lose a little bit of your freshness. So you know that you need to make your schedule to where you're rotating your beer through six months. And it's probably, it, it's probably not nowhere near your limit with the numbers I just gave you. I'm just making an example. That's a worst-case scenario because you're storing in a place where it's in a closet, and even though it's in the house, it's at 80 degrees. Because, again, I, I can't see you storing multiple kegs of beer in a refrigerator. Uh, it, just doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. No one does that. Uh, if you have a cellar or a basement, uh, you can, you know, with your beers, especially if you'll just go a little bit more toward the IPA or bitter uh, world, two years is, is nothing. In fact, some of those beers might get really, really nice. Um, and a lot of times if you take a beer that you've kind of brought to – a little bit higher bitterness than you normally would, that bitterness will, in fact, mellow quite a bit for you over, uh, let's say, a 12-month aging period. So it's really based on you, and you can create variables in your storage length by changing the beer. And understand that your, your special beers, when you make your own, can be everyday drinking beers because it doesn't cost that much more to make a really nice extra special bitter or even push things up into the realm of a barley wine or a Trappist triple or something like that than it does to make your everyday beer. It's a little more, but not much. All right, going on to the next one. Um, this comes from Stephen. Stephen says... I just heard the jobs report on NPR on a show in the morning edition that confirms what I had suspected and what you've been saying all along. A recent peer research report says that a full half of recent college grads are underemployed in jobs that do not require a degree. Do not, in all capital letters, by the way. They didn't mention the next step, and even worse news, that these jobs will likely make repayment of their loans much more delayed. As soon as I heard this story, I thought of you. Keep up the good work. Stephen, who is a public school teacher in Chicago. Thank you for your service there, buddy because that is not an easy place to teach and it's not an easy job to have and I'm glad you have an open mind and hopefully you're opening the minds of some of your students and telling some students maybe it's better for you to learn a trade than to go to college because the kid that's going to go to college is going to go anyway even if you give them that advice um, I think that there is a big problem here and I think that more and more people are finally starting to see the problem with sending such a large percentage of our students to college it seems counterintuitive to think that it's bad if too many people go to college, but I want you to think about it in a very honest way without all the bullshit and without all the hype and without the decades of marketing about how great a higher education is. I want you to think about it this way. Let's create a fictitious company. We will call it Jackco. It's my company. I run this company. And my company is in the business of um, manufacturing I don't know, widgets, because it doesn't really matter what it is. We could be manufacturing widgets. We could be importing widgets. We could be shipping widgets. It doesn't matter. The numbers that I'm going to give you are going to hold constant. In an organization that's large enough to need about 1,000 people, uh, we're going to have about 500 of those people that are running some equivalent level of grunt work, whether it's administrative grunt work or physical grunt work or what have you. 500 people that absolutely do not need a college degree by any stretch of the imagination. Now, today with so many surplus graduates, 
there may be almost everybody in this company of a thousand, a typical American company with a degree. The company may even decide that everybody needs a degree unless you're sweeping the floors. Anything above that needs a degree because, well, there's a surplus of candidates out there. But 500 people out of that thousand, absolutely no one can make a case whatsoever that those people need a degree to do their job. Okay? Now, we have 500 people left. In a company, any company, the upper management levels, director, VP type level, even the upper middle managers are going to make up no more than 20% of the company. Now that 20%, uh, with few exceptions, uh, and there are people like me that have been at the top of that 20% in companies without a degree, but in general, if you want to break into that 20%, you need a degree. Okay, So that leaves 200 uh, people out of the, uh, of the, the, the total of a thousand. And that's probably being overly kind with statistics. It's probably really 10%. It's probably a hundred people in a thousand person company. In fact, we're going to use that number. It's really 10%. It's 20% when you include the middle management layers. And so you'll need a degree to get into there unless you're just someone that can get into anywhere. All right. There's people that can do it. Again, I've done it myself, so I know it can be done. So you can't lie to me. So 20% you need a degree to break in. Okay. 10% really need a degree, uh, unless they're exceptional self-taught learners to do their job. Because these are your directors. These are your VPs, right? That's your hundred out of a thousand that really run the company and manage everybody and set up and do budgets. There you're also your, your top financial people, your company CPA, uh, maybe your number two, number three financial person under your CFO and your CP, you know, what have you, that type of thing. So now we have Another three, uh, well, we'd have 300 people in the middle there that maybe kind of sort of could benefit from a degree and maybe can't. And if they want to move up the ladder, fine. But the reality is that in that company, only 20% of the people really require that level of education. That doesn't mean the other 800 couldn't have benefited from things like technical schools or computer program training and might not benefit from continuous training and learning. But the greed professionals in that company were limiting that to about 200 people. Okay, So then, out of a 1,000 students, we have a goal to send all 1,000 to college. When we know... On the other side, 800 of the thousand will be in a role that doesn't require a degree. Even if comp, again, even if companies are technically requiring it because of the surplus right now, the role itself does not. So can you see how when we start setting a goal like every child should go to college, where do the majority then go when they're dropped out into the world of reality where it's just not really required? And you say, well, okay, well, everybody can't break into that top 20%, that upper middle management, upper management, director, CEO, that executive down to middle management layer. Not everybody's going to break in, but if you want a chance, you gotta, gotta go to college. In some levels, you're right, but there's so many people that are never going to go there and don't want to. Why are we pushing these people into a higher education system that doesn't fit compatibly with the lifestyle they're going to live for the rest of their life? The math doesn't work. I'm sorry, you can't have a company of a thousand people with 800 executives in it. We're running an education system that's designed for that reality. 800 people run a company, 200 people do the backbone of the work in the company. 
Well, we have the exact opposite. We have a thousand person company, about 200 people run and direct and manage the company, and about 800 people do the backbone work in the company. And unless your job, you know, unless it's like engineering, like a, a Lockheed Martin or something like that, uh, your, your backbone people don't need a degree. And even then, for every engineer, you've got, you know, uh, administrative support people and things like that that don't need a degree. It's just, It's just wrong on its face because, again, the numbers don't work out. And I'm going to get the mail, I know, from the diehards out there that went to college and, and spent so much money they kept their student loan around so long they might as well have named it and called it a pet and finally paid it off. And they've put so much sacrifice and effort into their degree and their education. They can't stand to hear anybody say anything negative about a college education. Well, first of all, Don't make it personal. Maybe it was right for you, and maybe it was right for most of the people that did it that you know. That doesn't mean that it's right for a lot of other people. Look, there are people out there that mentally are not equipped to go to college, and I'm telling you what's happening now. I've looked at my son's college textbooks. I've looked at my niece's college textbooks. I've sat down, and these are, you know, with my kid, we're going to third-year classes here, okay? And I've sat down and looked at some of these. Physics and stuff like the college level, university level, University of Texas, okay? And I've started reading those textbooks. And you know what I looked at? I went and said, most of this stuff I learned by 11th grade in high school. And you know what that is? That's the lower level college classes that are good enough to get out with a degree that they're using to bring it down to accommodate the people getting in that should not be there. And they're getting in and it, the people getting in that should not be there are only getting in Because of the money available in the form of student loans, which has made it to where anybody can pay, so anybody can some way finagle and get their way in. There are kids that are coming out with GPAs of 2.5 that are getting into schools. When I was in high school, you couldn't get into a college with a 2.5 GPA. They wouldn't have you. And I know there's still colleges out there that's fine private universities and there's fine upper level universities that you won't get in either but there's plenty 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 that'll open the door wide for you help you go into debt for $75,000 and then send you out to get a job and you end up working as a bartender and this is happening more and more and more and I'm going to tell you something that a lot of you are going to have a hard time accepting it's part of why there's such a high unemployment rate it's part of why the economy is suffering so badly because this person that goes through that even though they're really only equipped because you can educate the hell out of somebody but if, and they can learn and memorize and pass a test but if they don't really know how to apply the material they're still not going to be in the 20% and there's so many people out there right now that won't take a job in the 80 percentile because they think because they have a degree they're entitled to the 20th percentile. And the concept that you come out even with a degree and take a low entry level position and bust your ass for 10 years to get into the 20% has become lost to these people because they come out owing so much money they need the money now. So where do they turn? They turn to the government sector. Because if you have a degree and you, 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 you got the right time and right application, you get a government job and it pays really good compared to entry-level private sector out of the gate, and they'll sit there and they'll hold down a desk for years. They don't really learn anything. They don't learn anything about what it takes to be able to sign the front side of a paycheck. They become indebted to the government. As voters, they then support 
anything that expands government and, and, and repel anything and oppose anything that decreases government because they're dependent on government and now over 50% of the, the, the population that's employed in one level or another works for federal, state, or local government. Now, I'm not putting you down if you do. I'm just saying that's too much. And once we get into that point, the government can really not expand anymore because we can't feed 50% with 50%. We have to have more private sector expansion than public sector expansion. So we get all of these degreed professionals out there that are not professional, that have never had a real job in their life. And as the government does begin to cut back in certain areas where they have to, and they do start to lay off people like they've done, those people go out into the private sector, and the private sector wants nothing to do with them. That exasperates the problem. And what we end up with is a nation of people that have very high percentage of them with higher education but the same percentage as if most of them had never gone of people that are really capable of doing the work. And that's where we are. And the government expansion, the student loans, the marketing lie that everybody should go, and the lowering of standards to accommodate the second tier in of students, the people that used to not go, the people that used to go to tech schools, the people that used to get a job changing oil, and eventually maybe find their, their, their groove and end up owning 15 Jiffy Lubes, even though they never went to school, those people end up sitting in a government office where they create nothing and only consume. And it all stems from this concept that we have in our education system, and it goes all the way down to kindergarten. The whole concept of no child left behind. In a race, some people finish first and some people finish last. And there's a reality there. We don't want to make everybody the same. We want to create an environment where sprinters can sprint and get the glory of a sprinter and marathon runners can be marathon runners and some people can't run at all. And that's human nature. That's human reality. We all are gifted with the same rights by our creator but not the same abilities. And everything in the education system is an attempt today to turn that on its head to say, yes, we all can be the same. Everybody can learn the same, and they can not. There are people that do not have the mental capability to rise to the level of other people. It has nothing to do with race, religion, or creed, or sex, or natural origin, or anything. It has to do with simple reality. And if you don't believe that, then why are there only a few people in the world that are the top computer programmers or top chess players or top anything? You know, if everybody can learn equally, why can't everybody play a guitar like Sammy Hagar? Why can't everybody compose music like Mozart Armadeus? Why can't everybody do anything to the level of anybody else that's exceptional? Because we all have different areas. And that doesn't mean that people are not capable of being educated and being made very effective, very efficient, and very proficient in certain things, but the broad-spectrum approach has failed. Sorry to get on a rant, but man, if we don't get this as a nation, we can't... The thing is, we can't fix it if we keep throwing gas on the fire. This is one of the major things destroying the economy, the security, and the development and growth of America today. It doesn't sound like it makes any sense, but the more you examine it, the more you'll see I'm right. Boy, Greg Cecil sent me some good stuff because he's getting another one right here, this next story. Um, some really story, it's a little blog entry, and it's on Universe Today, universetoday.com. And the title of the blog post is Free Book Downloads. National Academy's Press offers more than 4,000 titles. 
so you want an education? Here's a way to get a lot of education for free um, and, and become more proficient and be able to do things uh, without spending billions of dollars uh, the way we do on college educations today and then end up as a bartender. Uh, let me read it to you again. Uh, it came out on June 2nd by Tammy Plotner. Are you hungry for knowledge? Well, if you've got a filet mignon appetite and a hamburger budget, then get in line as the National Academy's Press is offering free PDF downloads of more than 4,000 titles from its exhaustive library. The mission of the National Academy Press, NAP, publisher for the National Academy of Sciences, National Academy of Engineering, Institute of Medicine, and National Research Council, is to distribute the institution's content as widely as possible while maintaining its financial security. The project began in 1994 when the NAP began delivering content to developing countries and even then 65% of the files were free. Our business model has, this is a quote, quote, our business model has evolved so that it is now financially viable to put this content out to the entire world for free, said Barbara Klein Pope, executive director for the National Academies Press. This is a wonderful op opportunity to make a positive impact by more effectively sharing our knowledge and analysis. Just a quick browse through the title shows a wealth of information that one could spend hours choosing alone. You'll find agriculture, earth science, forensics, biology, computers, education, health, industry, math, And yes, space and aeronautics, just to name a few. Based on the performance of the NAP's current free PDF projections, suggest this change will enhance distribution of PDF reports uh, from about 700,000 downloads a year to more than 3 million downloads a year by 2013. Where do you get them? Just head over to the NAP website and have fun. I will put a link in today's show notes. And all you basically do is go find a book. And you can buy it. And these are expensive. A lot of them are like expensive reports and textbooks. And they're 70, 80 bucks. But you'll see a thing to download. You have to become a member uh, and be able to log in and download. You just click download. You download the PDF. And for those of you with e-readers that use native PDF files, send them right to your e-reader. Like I use a Kindle. Send it to my own Kindle address, which I will not give you because then you can spam my Kindle. Protect your Kindle email addresses, folks. Don't let those get out. And uh, you'll have it on your Kindle or your, your, uh, your e-reader or whatever you have. That is freaking awesome. Uh, and this is another reason that this is, you know, I brought this up right after this because here's my belief. The education that people receive is not bad. The structuring that says that a person that's going to engineering school needs a course in 15th century freaking French art is nonsense. And paying for that is nonsense. And we're getting to a place today where information can be distributed for free or for next to nothing. And we need to change the education model to where people can select what they really want to know, learn as much about it as possible, completely self-directed, and have some method of proving that out without going into debt for $100,000 to do it. And what we would have is people taking entry-level positions that lead somewhere and discovering what they need to know to move up along the way and piecemealing it. And a degree is not what gets it done. It's proven effectiveness, experience, and knowledge combined together. So I think that things like this are the solution. Again, uh, this is from the National Academy's website. And again, you know, we're talking about high-end stuff here. The National Academy's Press is a publisher for the National Academy of Science, the National Academy of Engineering, and the Institute of Medicine. All right, so that's uh, that's pretty good stuff. It's available for free, and you know, from a from an agriculture standpoint, we probably learn a lot. There's probably a ton of information there. Whatever you're interested, in, you'll find there. Um, this comes from JS. This next one, this is, I'll preface this by saying I'm a free market anarchist 
and I don't support anything that's funded with stolen money, quote, taxation, unquote, including the military. But I thought you'd find this interesting since I've heard you mention stuff like this before on your show. This article was just posted today, June 2nd. Before I read the article, let me respond to that. Those people that are the purest anarchist libertarian mind, let me give you a quote that I believe was Jefferson, if not Jefferson, it was Adams. If men were angels, we would not need a state. Okay, The whole point being that even the most liberty-minded of our fathers, and Adams really doesn't fall into that, but Jefferson certainly does, um, would understand that the anarchist model doesn't work unless all people will leave all people have what they should naturally have. So the role of the state is supposed to be, it doesn't work out this way, to protect the individual right and to provide things like common defense and promote general welfare. Notice in our, our, our Constitution and in, in, in that little thing there, the subtle difference. Provide for the common defense. That means the government shall provide a common defense for the states. It will only promote the general welfare. That's to create an environment conducive so that we can do it for ourselves, not to give it to us. So I think that if you are an anarchist, purist, libertarian, that what you're asking for is a return to the feudal system where the people with money will buy their own police forces and walk on top of everybody else. It'll be even worse than what we have now. Just one But the story is cool, and the story is something I wanted to share with you. And I think you'll like the title alone. This is from Health Impact News Daily. War vets turn to organic farming for mental health instead of drugs. Where have we heard this before? On May 10, 2011, a federal drug, drug, federal drug, a federal judge ruled that the Veterans Administration healthcare, mental health care system was, quote, incompetent, unquote, in order to complete overhaul. Did you know that? That May of this year, a federal judge ruled that the health care, mental health care system for our veterans was incompetent. That's great. So our guys go over there, they get shot up, they get blown up, they get sent back, and uh, they're having problems, and the system that's designed to help them adjust is so bad that even a federal judge can see that it's incompetent. Anyway, uh, it, received, it revealed that 18 veterans a day were committing suicide. So you know how many they tell you over there are um, getting blown up and the, the casualty list and all? Start going 18 plus 18 plus 18 plus 18 and do that for a month. And see where it gets you. You know what a month of that is? A 30 day month? Well, it would be about 540. And if you multiply that by 12, you get roughly 6400 a year. Okay, so multiply that by 10 years of misery. That's 64,000. People that come home, their injuries all, not always can be seen. But back to the upside of this. The widespread abuse of prescription and antidepressant drugs prescribed by military doctors for PTSD uh, has caused concern and received an extensive press coverage recently, even in the mainstream media outlets. We highlighted a report yesterday by Jim Edwards regarding the drug Seroquel and how military spending on Seroquel increased sevenfold since 2001 as veterans' doctors prescribed it for insomnia and post-traumatic stress disorder. Suicide is a known side effect of the drug and is routinely prescribed for off-label use. In 2010, a group of military families asked Congress to hold hearings into the widespread use of the drug that some claimed are behind many suicides. Uh, but here we go. 
One group that offers alternative to drugs in dealing with transition back to civilian life for our war veterans is Farmer Veteran Coalition. The FVC veterans, who uh, many times seem well-suited to the difficult challenge of farming, uh, while at the same time filling a need in a nation that is quickly losing farmers to retirement. There is also an increase in the demand among consumers for healthy products produced via small-scale sustainable agriculture. Here is the mission statement of the FVC. The mission of the Farmers Veterans Coalition is to mobilize our food and farming community to create healthy and viable futures for America's veterans by enlisting their help in building our green economy, rebuilding our rural communities, and securing a safe and healthy food supply for all. The coalition seeks to simultaneously assist the farming community by developing a new generation of farmers to help our returning veterans find viable careers and a means to heal American farms. The Farmer Veteran Coalition was founded by farmers and food industry leaders with long histories in overcoming the agricultural, managerial, financial, and marketing obstacles to being successful in their work. Uh, the goal of our work is to share experiences with recent military veterans and to assist them in using their many relevant skills to create a new generation of innovative, ecological, and financially successful young farmers. Our program has the ability to help veterans reduce risk and become successful farmers by utilizing many specific and unique resources available to help military veterans starting a business, buying land, and overcoming disabilities. And there's a five-minute video highlighting the success of their work here that you can watch that I think would be worth watching. And it goes on, and uh, it's really some some pretty interesting stuff. I mean, the whole thing's really awesome. And there's an interview with a, a sergeant on a second video there that you might want to watch. It's about eight minutes long. And uh, I'm going to try to get a hold of this group after I get back from vacation, see if I can get maybe somebody on the show to talk about this. But I want to talk to you about, again, what, what people go so to the surface with things, and they don't dig deeper, they don't ask, what's different this time, why is it different? Let me explain what I mean. In World War One, we had some of the most horrific fighting of our nation, but the soldiers came home to the Roaring Twenties, and it wasn't until after 1929 that we dealt with the Great Depression, and there were shell shock, and there was PTSD, even though they didn't know that's what it was at the time, but in general, most of those men that lived in trenches uh, that saw people get gassed, that saw the first really high-level mechanized warfare ever came home and went back to work on the farm or the factory and went back and built a life. And we didn't have 18 people a day killing themselves, even though a lot more people went and a lot more people came back. The worst thing they dealt with was the Spanish flu, which killed 50,000 people in America. But other than that, and that killed a lot of people, so it opened up more jobs. Just listen to me. Hear me out here before you, you, you start thinking I'm nuts. World War II. Men go off to war more than went to World War I. More casualties, more killed globally and Americans. Some of the most horrific fighting that's ever been seen ever in the world. Some of these men not only dealt with things like D-Day uh, and hit the beaches in Normandy and Omaha Beach and things like that, watching men chewed up in front of them like hamburger. Some lost legs, some lost arms, some lost everything. Uh, some of them also helped liberate concentration camps, found piles of stinking stagnant bodies, had to, had to bury them, had to organize civilian details to deal with them, uh, had to look at people that were barely surviving in these concentration camps that were skin and bones, had to take them and put them back into the camp and slowly feed them because if they gave them too much too fast, it could have killed them. Horrific. Went into the South Pacific with flamethrowers and burnt fellow human beings using flamethrowers out of caves. Okay. But when they came home, we didn't have this high incidence. I'm going somewhere here, folks. I really am. Give me time. 
And they came home, and what did they do? They used their GI bills, and they went to college, and the nation went on a construction spree. We built the Eisenhower road system, and the economy prospered. Even in Korea, the Forgotten War, men came home to something that was, it gave them something to do. Okay? Vietnam. Where we really learned how bad PSD could do, could be. More people messed up from that war until now than anything else that's ever happened in America. Even though less Americans went to Vietnam than went off to Europe and the South Pacific, So less people that came back as survivors that had really witnessed combat. But yet more people with trouble. Well, what was going on in the 70s, do you remember, if you were here? One of the biggest recessions until now that we've ever had before. Skipping ahead until the, um, the Second Gulf War and the War on Terror. Our men and women are going and serving. Many of them are coming out of high school at 18 years old. Idealists that want to serve their country and do something special. They're going off to war and they're coming home. And what are they coming home to? One of the biggest recessions that we've ever had in the history of the nation. And a lot of them are expecting that when they come out and they're a combat veteran and they have this belief, and I know because I was a, a veteran myself at one time, that when you come home, everybody's going to love you and everybody's going to want to hire you. And there is a hiring preference for veterans in some places, but not when the jobs are in decline. So these men and women are coming home after dealing with this crap, and they're not finding a purpose. Okay, Because there is, I believe, and I've said before, we could put psychiatrists out of business. We could put the psychotropic, the psychotropic drug manufacturers out of business if we would make gardening something every American did. So there is a... There's a health aspect there just from doing it and just from digging in the dirt. And there's certain things that are released by the earth when we farm that by breathing them in are actually good for us. We have studies that show that's true. I'm not nuts if you haven't heard the episodes where I've talked about that. But it's also a sense of purpose. And I think one of the reasons that we've had so much problem with stress disorders after Vietnam and this, this, this current war is that when these men come home, these women come home, they don't have a place to get to do something. And many of them sit and they don't have anything to do and they don't fit in with society anymore. And unless you give them a purpose and an occupation, they sit around on unemployment for six to 12 months. Not because they're not willing to work, because they can't figure out what to do and there's not a lot of places waiting for them. Then they sit and they think. And then they remember. And then it spirals together. And then some army doctor gives them a drug that's been known to cause suicide to a person that's already having suicidal thoughts, and 18 of them a day take their own lives. So that's why this will work. Because it will give them a sense of purpose. Well, I don't think that's something you're going to hear at many other places. So even when I cover mainstream news and people say, I can get this on Fox News, Jack, I don't think you're going to get that on Fox News. I don't think they're going to break it down for you that way. And I would wonder if even the people doing it understand that that's what they're really combating. It's about giving these men who feel they've done so much already, but they're not ready to quit, something else to do. And this is the key, something to do that matters. Something that will challenge them physically, intellectually, but at the end of the day, they can feel like what they did made a difference because I'll tell you what a lot of them feel like. I went over there and I lost buddies. And I came home either physically or mentally injured. And it doesn't really matter. Especially the guys coming back from Afghanistan. 
They feel like it's really the same as it was when I got there. And it's going to be the same or worse 10 years from now. What, 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 what makes it worth what I gave? And what that person is craving is a sense that they can make a difference, that they can matter. And that's why I think this is such a fabulous, fabulous thing that this type of thing's going on. And I wonder, could it be broken down and microized? Could, could we set up things that would just specifically teach You know, returning vets to do the same thing on an even smaller scale with aquaponics and CSAs and stuff like that. I don't know. And are there other things that we could do this with, other skill sets that would be in demand? I don't know. But I think there's a lot of people out there listening to this, and someone might come up with something. And if you do, just like I said earlier about not letting the concern about how long beer would last in a keg hold you back, don't let concern over exactly how you're going to get it done hold you back. Do it. Because these guys are worth it. Um, that's why I always, always try to tell you guys to remember to think of our vets and to thank a vet when you get a chance because I believe what I'm telling you right now. Let's go ahead and take another one. Last one today I want to I talk about, and uh, let me see who sent this. I'm actually, I think I found a different video, but Scott uh, sent this in originally, and I, I found a kind of a, a more recent video to use for this. But I want to play this video for you uh, that was on Fox News. And I'll just play the audio for you. I'll put a link to the actual video so you can uh, cruise over to YouTube and watch it if you if you prefer to do that. Uh, but there's a lot of concerns about this E. coli strain that's going on in Europe right now. And uh, I want to bring some fact in, and then I want to give you some of my thoughts on it. So let's go ahead and listen to that video now. At least 18 people are dead and thousands sick as the European E. coli outbreak continues to spread. So far, 12 countries have been affected with four cases showing up here in the United States. Dr. Mark Siegel from our medical aid team is here on how you can protect yourself from this uh, rare E. coli strain. And this is a, a super toxic strain. How does that even occur? Actually, it occurs because we give cows too much antibiotics and then resistant bugs they, they get more and more prominent and they take over the bowel, then they get out into the water and they get over to the crops. The bacteria produces a toxin. The problem is not the bacteria itself, Molly, it's the toxin it produces. In this case, one out of three patients that have this ended up with kidney failure and 18 have died already. This is one of the most virulent E. coli that we've seen. And so this basically goes after your organs. Exactly. It goes after your kidneys. It causes a lot of diarrhea. People get dehydrated. The best way to treat this is with hydration, fluids. Antibiotics don't really work. Experts here in the United States are saying, well, they're giving antibiotics to people in Europe, but antibiotics can actually kill the good bacteria, then the bad bacteria takes over. Right. And we know that there are four people affected here in the United States, but they had recently been in Germany. Uh, so how nervous do people need to be here in the U.S.? What can they do to just take precaution? Well, people here should wash their vegetables. They should wash their hands. They should peel their fruit and vegetables, but they should know, unfortunately, that that doesn't work 100% of the time because it takes very little of this bacteria to actually cause the infection. The biggest thing you can do is to isolate someone who has it because the most important way to get it is by eating fruits and vegetables. You could get it if you're in close contact with someone who has it. So someone that had a lot of fever and diarrhea should definitely be isolated. But the biggest pathogen here, the biggest bug, is always fear. It's never the bacteria. I mean, when Russia says they're not importing any produce from the European Union and we start interviewing people in Germany and they're afraid of salads, the chances of you actually getting it are so microscopically small. 
any of our viewers out there today are not going to eat a salad and get this bacteria. It's almost impossible. We think we're going to get it, but we're not. The fear is always the biggest problem. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Siegel, kind of uh, letting us know not to be quite so afraid, but at the same time to just behave ourselves, take precautions, the normal things. Watch exactly. And we should watch these things because this is a pretty, pretty bad bacteria. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Siegel. Thanks, Appreciate it. Uh, coming up. So how do you feel about what you just heard? I mean, when he says it's almost impossible to get this, um, I'm going to give you two ways that, I, that this can be taken. If I take it for me personally, for you personally, which I think is how the doctor meant it, uh, so what he's saying is, if Jack, if on the way home you stop by uh, your local uh, family grocery store and pick up some vegetables and uh, go home and cut them up and wash them the way that you're supposed to and use basic common sense and, and take some of that leftover steak you had last night and slice it up and throw it on the top and get a little blue cheese dressing going on there, and mm, that sounds good, and look crouton activity, and do that for lunch today, which I might do. It sounds pretty good. Uh, it's almost impossible you, Jack, are going to get this uh, this strain of E. coli. Don't even worry about it. Just go on with your life. If that's what he means, then I, I completely agree with what he said, but it just didn't come across that way to me. It almost sounded like it's almost impossible to get this, period. Well, what about all those people over there in Europe that are on dialysis machines uh, because of kidney failure that are barely hanging on? What about the four Americans that came back here uh, uh, with it that, uh, uh, that are having problems? What about all the uh, people that actually died in Europe from it? How, if it's so impossible to get, how, how, did, how, did, how did they get it? Um, so to me, the, the overall overriding concept is a concern. It just maybe isn't something that we need to sit around brooding and worrying about, like this is the next big thing that's going to come get us. Uh, like some people did with things like the bird flu and uh, the, the swine flu and uh, all this other stuff. You know, don't don't panic, don't overreact to it. If that's what the guy meant, fine. Here's my thoughts, though. Where did it come from? Oh, we're giving the cows too much antibiotics. That's why I'm giving the doctor the benefit of the doubt, and I think what he was saying was me and you because you know he's telling you the truth there. When you start wondering where all these new super diseases come from, it comes from this overuse of antibiotics. We're giving uh, cattle, we're giving livestock antibiotics when they're not sick, constantly. So all this bacteria that's out there that they're capable of fighting is continuously adapting to become more antibiotic resistant. And what's happened with this strain is that two strains of, um, of E. coli have basically hybridized that both have this bacterial, this uh, this antibiotic resistance, and that may be something that would have happened anyway, but we've accelerated that process, uh, and what we've gotten is a very virulent and very deadly combination. So those two, one bringing the death with it, one bringing the death and destruction, and one bringing the resistance, uh, so the weak, deadly E. coli bacteria have merged with the uh, normally not so harmful but highly uh, antibiotic resistant uh, E. coli and made a new super E. coli. And that's what we've done. Isn't that great? As the church lady used to say back in Saturday Night Live when it was a great show before they screwed it up, isn't that special in the days of Dana Carvey? Um, and the reason I want to continue, you know, finish up today with this one is because it's been all over the news over the weekend. It's something that I know a lot of you are concerned about. It shows the real threat of... Uh, disease and, and potential pandemic spreads, but it also shows once again the the tendency of people to overreact to something. And what I want everybody in this audience to do with all things in your life is to have balance. So 
It doesn't make sense to go to the store and buy lettuce and bring it home and tear it up and throw it in a bowl and not wash it. That's dumb. It also doesn't make sense to decide you can't trust the lettuce from the store anymore. Because you're going to get E. coli because somebody in Germany got it. We've got to find that balance point in the middle with all the things in our lives. With with finance, with, with employment decisions, with everything. And that's what I hope this show gives you over time. And I hope it's what it's continuing to give you. And I, I hope that it's something you've heard from me for as long as you've listened. Whether you're a new listener or a long-term listener. That it's important that we stay grounded with a foundation of reality. But we remain with a healthy distrust of government and media. Well, look at what you say and we'll believe most of it if it makes sense, but if it doesn't, we're going to ask additional questions, we're going to get additional facts for ourselves, we're going to question things, and you're not going to demean us because we don't just buy into everything you say. And we're also going to know sometimes it's not so much that you're telling us the wrong information, but you're not giving us all the information. We're going to take steps for ourselves. That's not paranoia. That's common freaking sense. That's the way your grandparents would have lived, or your grandparents did live. And if they were still around, that's how they'd be telling you to live today. And we can live that way. And we can address these threats rationally with common sense. And we can accept the fact that, just like anything else, this could get worse before it gets better. But we'll probably stand right through it with no problem. And it's probably not going to affect you at all. But it's another reminder to make sure you're doing things like good sanitation with your food. And then try to apply this, this, this line of thinking to everything in your life. To your investments. It doesn't mean, oh, good, the market's going to crash and uh, there's no hope for the future, so I might as well go get myself into debt and convert all my cash that I do have into gold. Great way to get your ass kicked because you're only planning for one outcome. So you have to find balance. How do I, how do I mitigate the risk and still partake in the upside if things work out? When it comes to gardening, you know, how do I minimize the potential for contamination from things like genetic modification without freaking out and believing that everything that's, you know, maybe a hybrid seed is bad. How do I maintain a sense of sanity in an insane world? I do it by living life under my, under my direction and my way and under my own personal control. And that's what this show is really all about. Empowering you with the knowledge and the information that you need to make your decisions for yourself. So even when you disagree with me, you're fully informed and you know why you believe what you believe. And you do what you freaking think is right for you and your family. And you stand behind it. And when you're right, you reap the rewards. And when you make a mistake, you back up, you fix it, you do it again until you get it right. We build a stronger, better nation. And with an international audience, so we have a stronger, better world. But we don't do it by somebody telling us how to behave. We do it by telling ourselves that we, as a free individual human being on this planet, have certain rights inherent to ourselves. But if we want those rights, they come with concurrent responsibilities. Those responsibilities include action and a responsibility to acquire the knowledge so we can have what we want. You do that, you start building that better life. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to build that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. These days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do it
Revolution.